Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to have in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish, and one thing that they'd like to forget. Something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is the ex-stand-up comedian, ex-presenter, ex-award-winning radio DJ and talk show host, ex-breakfast TV host, ex-I'm-a-celebrity-get-me-out-of-here contestant, ex-record label owner. Oh, look, let's face it, Ian Lee has done most things. His TV career started on the 11 o'clock show on Channel 4, which was the starting point for comedians such as Ricky Gervais and Sasha Baron Cohen. He moved in 2002 to become the co-host of Channel 4's live breakfast show, Rise, which unfortunately only lasted about a year. He went on to present Thumb Bandits, a video game show, and Liquid News, and was in Celebrity Soup, Law of the Playground, My Worst Week, How Do They Do It, The One Show, Sky News, and he made regular appearances on This Morning and Big Brother's companion series, Bit on the Psych and Big Brother's Little Brother. He actually came third in the 2017 series of I'm a Celebrity, which is not bad. His extensive radio work includes shows on XFM, LBC, Absolute Radio, where he hosted the Sunday night show, and then the Monday to Thursday evening slot. He won a Radio Academy Award in 2014 for Breakfast Show of the Year, moved to Talk Radio in 2016, winning the Audio and Radio Industry Award for Best Speech Presenter. Personally, I prefer my DJs to use Semaphore, and he won that award again in 2020. This time for Moment of the Year, for directing emergency services to a caller who had taken an overdose, which he talks about in more detail in this podcast. In July 2020, Ian announced that he'd been signed by Twitch to continue hosting the Late Night Alternative on its streaming platform. The show allows video calls from viewers worldwide. 
In 2023, Ian announced his retirement from radio in order to focus more on his work as a counsellor. So there you are. There are some things that Wikipedia will tell you about Ian Lee. But what does he think are the important things in his life? Well, let's find out, shall we? Here is the delightful Ian Lee and a bit of me. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. How are you? What have you been up to? I've retired from show business. I don't know if you've heard. Uh, yeah, that was the rumour. <laughs> and I feel fantastic. 30 years of chasing, 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 chasing. Mm. And, you know, the circle gradually getting smaller and smaller. And the last job I did on this little breakfast show in, in Oxford, I hated it. Didn't like it. There was stuff going on. You know, stuff was going on there. There's always stuff mm. going on. And I just thought, I'm not enjoying this. I wonder what would happen if I stopped. And in the meantime, I'd retrained as a counsellor. And so I have a plan B for the first time ever in my life. I have a plan B. So what led you down that route, though? What made you think, do you know what? That's something I'd be interested in doing, being a counsellor. I can tell you the moment that it, it kind of clicked was about four years ago, we had a guy phone up the radio show when I was doing a late night radio show. And he'd taken an overdose. And he didn't know where he was. He was outside somewhere and he didn't know where he was. So I kept him on air for 30 minutes. Mm. Um, and the reason I kept him on air was because I was getting him to describe what he could see. We knew he was in Plymouth. And then he was describing, I can see this, I can see this, I can see this. And someone phoned up and said, oh, I think I know where he is. I think he's here. Mm. So then my producer phoned emergency services. And I was talking to him for half an hour just to, you know, keep him. And he, he disappeared for seven minutes. He stopped talking. I thought, oh, shoot, man, this guy's dead. Yeah. And I kept talking and kept talking. And he came back. Eventually, the police picked up the phone. We've got him. We'll deal with this now. And he went to intensive care. He lived, but he he did die. And they brought him back to life. So it was serious. This was a real mm-hmm. close call. And <laughs> you know, I didn't know what to say. So we're, we're doing all the supportive stuff. And after 15 minutes, I have nothing left. So I said, right, what's your favourite Die Hard movie? I'm asking him about <laughs> Die Hard when he's dying. <laughs> and I thought, this is, not, this is not good. So I came away from that, Michael, thinking, I wonder what I could have done differently if I'd have known what I was doing. If I had some skills, apart from life mm-hmm. skills, if I had some actual skills in my in my tool belt, I wonder what yeah. I could have done differently. So that was the point where I, it really started, started considering it. And then I lost a job just into lockdown. I lost that radio gig and there was nothing on the horizon and the timing was right to sign up for a diploma. You know, it all fell into mm. place. Yeah. The universe, the universe gave me that opportunity. But it's a nice opportunity. Yeah. I mean, it's very easy and probably correct to look at all the things that you and I have done in our lives and go, yeah. well, what was the fucking point of that? <laughs> do, you, do you think that? Because I do, I am thinking that at the moment. Not about your well, career, Michael, I wouldn't be so bold. <laughs> but about my career, I, there's, there are very, you know, 25, 30 years, there are, there are very few things that I'm, I'm really proud of. You know, very few things I can go, that's that's dear to my heart. Maybe I could maybe think of three or four mm. that I'm proud of in, in terms of the work. Yeah. And, I, you know, people say, oh, no, but you did this, you did this and this. But it doesn't register with me. It doesn't connect. No, I don't really think about the work after I've done it. Yeah. I like doing it. Yeah. I, I mean, so really I'm sort of chasing self-satisfaction. I, I sort of find it enjoyable to do yeah so in fact i'm just fulfilling my my wish to be indulged well and and i understand that what's interesting is you know now i'm a counselor and i've got clients and i'm private practice and it's not completely altruistic one i'm being paid so there's a financial side Mm. but two 
I, I, I really, really enjoy it. I get pleasure out of it. So I'm not just doing it for the person sat opposite me. I'm getting pleasure out of it. Yeah, yeah. Which is, some people find it a little bit weird in, in terms of, you know, that. But actually, no, I think it's it's a human it's a human thing. Almost as if you ought to be some sort of, you know, saintly yeah. Mother Teresa type thing. Yeah. I do nothing for myself. I just give, give, give. <laughs> I'm suffering. I'm feeling their pain. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's very, very early days. I'm finding it so satisfying. And, of course, you know, if someone came with a really good offer, you know, and the money was right and it fitted in, you know, of course I'd do it. Of course I'd do another show. Or I'd yeah, I mean, in fact, you may even find then, having found this other side of to your life, that the job then is really good because you go, well, actually, this is unimportant. This is just a sort of piece of flimsy that I yeah. do. Uh, do you know what? I got that. I got. I remember the moment I got that none of this TV stuff matters and radio stuff matters. I was doing a breakfast TV show, not The Big Breakfast. It was what came after it, Rise, that flopped miserably because people yeah. were in The Big Breakfast. Mm. And I couldn't get it. I'd never done a live TV show, two-hour live TV show, and I couldn't get it. I couldn't get it. And then three months in, I thought, oh, this isn't important. The only one that thinks it's important is me. This is fluff. And if I do a bad show, it doesn't matter because I'm doing another show tomorrow. And once I got, you know, and, and it was that thing, we're all going to die and no one's going to remember, you know, once I got that thing, this is not important. Show business is not important. Yeah. It suddenly becomes so much easier, doesn't it? It does. I think it really does because actually the longevity of it makes that clear, I think, yeah. is that for some people, these things are important and they like that sort of trivia in yeah. a way. They yeah. like looking back at detail and that's fine. Have fun. But I get sent photographs. Oh, look, I've just found this image of you doing home James. What? And I go, oh, with Jim Davidson. Oh, God. Home James. You know, and I've absolutely <laughs> forgotten that I did it. Yeah. And isn't that interesting? Because I remember home James and it was huge. But with, with no disrespect to you, most people won't remember that. No. You know, it's 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 gone. But uh, it's really hitting me recently. When I'm on my deathbed, I will not be saying, I wish I'd done more radio shows. I, I wish <laughs> I pushed harder to get that script picked up. It'll be, I wish I spent more time with my kids. I wish I'd, I'd had more holidays. I wish I'd, you know, yeah. had sex more. I wish I'd done all of this living stuff more, which is, we, we, we forget to I do. Know. I can't have more sex, surely. Jesus, how much are you doing? I'm, I'm doing it at the moment. <laughs> You're going to be a husk. Shooting sand. <laughs> I think I'm doing it. Am I doing it wrong? Well, I thank God I can't see what's going on downstairs. I'm not, I'm not a sex therapist. I cannot help you with that. No, okay. Can I ask you one question before we start? And then if the yeah, answer's sure. yes, it will become clear in the thing. And if the answer's no, it won't become clear. I'll explain. Did you ever work on um, Simon Mayo's TV show, Confessions? I did, yeah. We'll talk about that in the thing then. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. No, it's nothing bad. Don't worry, it's nothing bad. No. It's not, it's, you know, it's not a, a, I don't, a I don't mind either way. Okay. As we've pointed out, this is insignificant. There we go. Beautiful. Very zen. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we start, I'll shut up. You, start, you do what you need no, to do. Uh, there's no, there's no start. There's oh. no shut up. We just sort of segue beautifully into you telling me about the five things from your life you put in a time capsule, which okay. you may have already started. I don't know. Uh, no, I haven't. But, but, but okay. Well, in that case, very quickly, I will just, let me just move that there. Cause there's my list. I did a list. Wow. We have met before and I do not expect you to remember it. There's no reason you would remember it at all because this was before I was on TV. I asked you if you'd worked on Simon Mayo's Confessions. Right. And the reason I asked that is because my sister worked on it. Joe Rugby, she would have been at the time. Mm -hmm. And she was a, I, I think she was a runner. I'm not quite sure. She was, she was doing something, you know, the, one of the people that are often overlooked, but actually is integral. Mm -hmm. And me and my friend Simon, we were budding actors and performers. And she said, do you want, do you want to come and see how the show's made and what's, what's going on? I said, yeah, 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 sure. That'd be great. 
I think it was at LWT, the London studios, I think. It, it was, yes. Yeah. yeah. And so we came in and we got to sit in the office, you know, and there's Simon Mayo over in the corner and there's this, and there's <laughs> the director. And, the, and we were sat at a table and directly opposite was you. Because I'm assuming you were a writer on it? No, I did the, I did the voiceover. Oh, okay. You, you were there and me and my friend Simon... We were both a little bit, oh my, oh my God, it's Michael Fenton Stevens. Oh my God, this is... Oh dear. We were, trying, I know, we were trying to play it cool. And then I said something that made you laugh, right? That sense of pride, and I made you laugh. And I'll never forget, this is the most ridiculous line, but it's, it's a line that keeps coming back to me. I, my friend Simon said, oh, look, you made the laugh to make a laugh. And that, <gasps> that must have been 96, I think, 97, yeah. I'm not sure. Something and that, like that line yeah. has always stuck with me. Me saying something funny, no idea what it was. You giggling or chuckling, wryly, and Simon saying... Made the laughter make a laugh. You made the laughter make a laugh. Well, how lovely to be a laughter maker. <laughs> well, you are, and you you know. <laughs> I nearly said you you were. What a terrible thing. It may be true. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so we... I, I met is a, is a strong word, but we sat opposite each other. It was before I was on telly, before, you know, I was still, I'm probably still at college, I think. Well, thank God I wasn't a bastard then. <laughs> Go, I nearly said cunt then. <laughs> you can't say you can't say cunt, Michael. Please. You can't say cunt on um, here. No. Im- imagine if the only reason I said yes to this was because twenty five years ago you were a bastard to me. Yeah, I, and want I wanted to get back to at you <laughs> for it. <laughs> You're going to sit here and say, "Right, go on, ask me five things. Right, this, 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 and this, and this. Now fill your fucking program yourself, you bastard." No, yeah. it, you you were delightful. Do you know what I'd like to bury in a time capsule? You, mate. <laughs> you. <laughs> I'm going to give you my first of my five things. This, That'd be marvellous. I thought this was going to be difficult, but actually, these came quite easily. They were they were quite specific, and I broadened them out slightly. And are we allowed to bring like heavy stuff into this time capsule? We are, aren't we? Anything you want, yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to make you laugh, hopefully again. Make the laugh to make a laugh. <laughs> Who knows, dear listener, I might make you cry at some point. Mm-hmm. My first thing in the time capsule, and I, you'll be able to identify with this, was the first time proper I was on television. I, you know, I'd done some stuff. Do you remember? I don't. Do you remember live TV, the TV channel at the top of Canary yeah. Wharf with topless yeah. darts and things? It was awful. <laughs> and I'd done some bits on there, but that doesn't count. So I the, loved, you know, topless darts. You loved it, did you, dirty bastard? I'm going to t- just for a moment. I, before you get into this story, I'm going to interrupt you with the fact that when we did KYTV, oh god, I love the that. sports channel for KYTV. We said coming this Saturday, topless darts, and we just had a lot of fat people with their shirts on. <laughs> So they nicked the idea from you. We still think that somebody looked at that and went, do you know what, actually, that could work. Yeah, they stole the idea from me. KYTV, <laughs> is that, it, it's not on DVD, is it? Is it available to stream anywhere? Uh, I think it's only on YouTube. Right, yeah. okay. It's another one of those things. I remember the, the, for years and years and years, the goodies weren't available to watch, and, and um, no. Bill Oddie was furious about this, you know. And um, things, things like KYTV, we talked earlier about, Actually, it may seem insignificant to you. I don't know, but but that was one of the key things in me developing, in me learning what I thought was funny, in me learning um, in learning humour and timing and what was funny and what wasn't funny, and 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 your show wasn't funny, and that. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking, I'm joking. Um, so that was integral. When was the? Well, let me let me flip this. This is the problem of having someone on who interviews people. I'm going to flip oh, it. What, what was your first time on TV? Um, not the nine o'clock news. Was it really? 
Yeah, isn't that weird? What a show to be on. What a show to be on. And do you remember the first gag or the first sketch that got broadcast? Yeah. Um, I, don't, I can't actually remember what the sketch was, but mm. I know that it was set on an, an aeroplane and I was sitting next to Griff. Wow. And bizarrely, I was knitting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was knitting at the time. I'd learned to knit. And I said, shall I knit? And they went, yeah, OK. Don't say that when I've just taken a mouthful of coffee, please. <laughs> <laughs> New trousers. I have no idea. I was still a student. I was brought down to London by John Lloyd. Thrilling? Was it thrilling? Um, I mean, we talked about how we don't really remember some of the stuff, so this may be a hazy, a hazy mist to you. I can't remember if it was thrilling, actually. I think that I just felt, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. Right. You know? I knew that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. And then suddenly I was in it. And I had no idea of the rules at all. So yeah. I spent, I just followed John Lloyd around, who was producing it. They'd already done a series. And I just followed John around. And I remember sitting with him and Sean Hardy writing mm. jokes. Incredible. He said, Come and join us. Yeah. Got any ideas for the news links? And I said, I um, don't know. And I just started writing <laughs> jokes. Do you know, I don't think I'd ever written a joke in my life at that point. Really? That was mm. it. You, you were suddenly with, with two, you know, great people to be working on. Any gags? Yeah. Um, how about this? I know. And actually, it turns out that I could write jokes. I went, what about that? And they went, oh, it's quite funny, yeah. Anyway. No, writing is, a, writing is a dark art to me. I can't write gags. I can't really tell gags. And my, the stuff I've done is often not gag-based, particularly not in the last 15 years on the radio. Mm. I cannot write gags. And to me, it's like someone writing a symphony or, you know, doing some dark art incantation. Don't get it. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredible to see it. Yeah. Going back, the, so the first time proper on TV was the 11 o'clock show. Really? It was. And it had been a huge build up to it. Because I was, I studied performing arts, mm -hmm. Middlesex University, the year after it became a university before it, it was a polytechnic. Yeah. And I wanted to be an actor. That was the thing I really wanted to do to be an actor. There was a wonderful tutor there, a guy called Hugh Thomas, who taught a module on stand up comedy. Now, you can't be taught how to be funny. You, it was more about the mechanics of what stand-up could be. And he basically said, it can be anything you want. You know, you, you learn some microphone technique. You can do anything. Mm. So I ended up after college. I couldn't get any acting work. So I was doing stand-up. And that led to me getting a small little slot on a breakfast show on a radio station in Milton Keynes. I was Ian in Black Thunder. And I had to drive around Milton Keynes getting people to do stuff. And I hated it. Really hated it. It just <laughs> didn't, didn't click for me. So after six mm. months, I quit. On the, the week that I quit, one of the team came in and said, oh, we've had a fax, Ian. You might be interested in this. And it was Channel 4 or maybe Talkback Productions, are looking to create a new nightly topical comedy show, We Will See Anybody, is basically what it said. We Will See Anybody. And I thought, all right, I'm going to have some of this. I had an agent at the time. And I said, put, put me forward for this. He said, no, I don't think you're right for it. I said, I really want to go for this. He said, I, I don't think you're right for it. So I put myself forward for it. And this was my last roll of the dice, because I mm. was out of college, had no money, was back living with my mum. I must have been 24 or 25. And this was the last roll of the dice before I went and got a proper job. And I went for the audition, and the audition was me filming a little Vox Pop thing and doing a little silly news thing that I had written. So it was a bit clunky. And I kept getting called back. And I was called back, well, you, you will, will have been good friends with this guy, by Harry Thompson, mm. the, the wonderful Harry Thompson, whose fingers, you know, were all over comedy and, and still has an influence, even though he's no longer with us, yeah. still has a huge influence on, on how mm. comedy TV is made and edited and stuff. Um, 
And he kept calling me back and calling me back. And in the end, he said, I really want you on this show. Would you do it? Yes, I'll do it. (laughs) And originally I was, yeah, he's got to say no to him. And originally, although I wish I had said no a few times, particularly when he made me do, they think it's all over, which was bloody hideous. Hated that. (laughs) Anyway, um, so I was just going to be this guy that did the Vox Pops on the street. And they they auditioned everyone, comedians, radio presenters, writers, to be one of the three main presenters. Mm. And... The week before it went out, it was going to go out Tuesday, Wednesdays, Thursdays. And the week before, they had Brendan Burns and they had Fred McCauley. They were locked in. Mm. But they didn't have the third. And they kept trying people and kept trying people. And I I have no idea where this confidence came from. I went up to Harry and said, I can do that. <laughs> I'd never done it before. I went, I can do that. And he went, this is why he was so great. He went, you know what, we'll take a punt. Let's do a pilot with you. Wow. This was on the Thursday, the week before it started on the Tuesday. And after he said, you're brilliant, you're in. <laughs> so suddenly I'm hosting a TV show on Channel 4 with Fred and Brendan. Um, and I'll shut up in a minute because I, I, I want to hear your voice more than mine. Um, no. The premise of it was it was all filmed on the day. Hmm. The premise was slightly not quite true, but we, it would be written on the day and filmed on the day. So I went out and recorded a Vox Pop. I came back in the afternoon. All the gags were written. I sat down there and I read an auto cue. Brilliant. Thrilling. <laughs> The real thrill was going home with my then-girlfriend, Tessa, to her house, because I was still living at Mum's, and we got a bottle of wine, and we sat and watched it. Oh, my God, I can feel it now. The excitement, the pride, the thrill. It, it wasn't quite what I wanted to do. It wasn't acting, but I was on telly hosting a TV show, the third wheel in a TV show. Oh, my God. Yeah. I feel it now. I feel the excitement now. Nothing like it. No, I bet. Nothing like it. I bet. I mean, uh, and it was a brilliant show. It was exactly what everybody had been trying to do for a long time. Yeah. I did a nightly live show, but sadly we did it for BSB which, before it became B Sky B. Oh, so with the Square Reel. The Square Reel. Let's, sorry, let's just take a moment. Mm, the yeah. Square Reel. Kids, you've got no idea with your high speed broadband. <laughs> we had Square Reels. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly classier than those round ones. Mm. Yeah. It was supposed to be, wasn't it? <laughs> what, was the, what was the show you did? I think it was called Up Your News, okay. which is, I think that's what it was called. Yeah. But it had a good bit with Caroline Quentin and uh, uh, Paul Merton did a few. And wow. So, you know, some good actors. And we had a guest host each time. So for us, it was a joy because it meant we had sort of people like Spike Milligan turned up and did a night, you know, and uh, wow. Kenneth Connor, I remember. I'm going to write this down because I want to, I've not heard up of this. News. I want to look this up later on. Up Your News. Okay. Yeah, I wonder. I've never seen it. That, that writing that stuff in a day is tough. Mm. That is tough. A whole thing done in a day, yeah, it was fun. Incredible. And that's what the 11 o'clock show was. And yeah. it was the springboard. People forget some of the people that worked on that, in front of the camera, behind the camera. Jimmy Carr was the was the warm-up man. Right. Jimmy yeah. Carr and Robin Ince were the warm-up men. <laughs> you know, imagine having Jimmy. wasn't on the show. I don't know if he ever appeared on the show. But Jimmy Carr. Jimmy Carr. Whatever happened to him? I don't know, don't know. where he went. Jimmy Carr, Robin Ince, Ricky Gervais, his first yeah. TV show, Mackenzie Crook, who I was living with at the time. Me and Mackenzie were flatmates, and I would kind mm. of help get him in. Uh, oh, Daisy right. Donovan, Dan Mazer, who was a producer and went and produced loads of TV series and I think a couple of films in America. Who else? Ali G. Ali G. Of course, Sasha, Ali G, you know, who, mm-hmm. was, who was the star of the show. You know, he yeah. was... He became a phenomenon. You know, it was he was everywhere. You know, people, Richard Madeley doing an impression of him on This Morning. He really seeped into the zeitgeist. And it's, mm. it's hard to imagine that now, looking back. He was massive, absolutely yeah. massive. But what a joy 
25-year-old naive, scared me being surrounded by all of these incredible talents who went on to take over show business. Yeah. What a thrill. Mm. I mean, Ricky, that's the first time he sort of did the office character, isn't it? Yeah. Sort of, although it was angrier. Oh, it was, he was he was horrendous. You know, yeah. and I loved it. It was delicious. And Ricky was in. Everyone loved Ali G. Ricky divided people straight down the middle. I remember <laughs> a discussion in the 11 o'clock show office because he was almost the second presenter along with me. When it got down to two presenters, me and mm. Daisy, he was almost Daisy Donovan, wow. um, which is a strange phrase to say. Um, <laughs> and I remember in the 11 o'clock show office with a couple of the commissioning editors and we were watching a video that Ricky had done and the producer, Dom English, took over from Harry, turned and said, right, is is that funny? Half the half the room went. That is the funniest thing we've ever. Tears. The other half went. I don't get it. I'm not. I'm not sure what he's doing. And it was. Man. It really was that close. Um, and it was the same with the audience. Some people loved it. Some people hated. I mean, he was obnoxious. Uh, his character. Mm-hmm. He, he himself was a lovely, wonderful human being. He was very generous to me at the time. But you know, I was it would be sat opposite him doing a, a skit. And I, I just, honestly, you could tell he was destined for great things. Being that close to a master of comedy, whatever you think mm. about him now, but he was a ma- he is a master of comedy. And mm-hmm. sitting opposite that, wow. Yeah. You know, the, I, I imagine, you know, similar to you sitting on a, a writing table with John Lloyd, you know, another master of comedy. Mm-hmm. You just feel that energy coming from them, that electricity zapping out of them. Yeah, yeah. It's really obvious, isn't it, mm. when you see them. The first Edinburgh Festival I did as a student we shared a dressing room with the Cambridge Footlights. And in that Footlights team were Hugh Laurie, Stephen Fry and Emma Thompson. Oh, incredible. Now, I mean... Incredible. We knew that Hugh and Stephen were funny, but Emma Thompson, to see her on stage in front of an audience, even at that young age, it was so obvious. You yeah. thought, God, she's going to be enormously famous. People, I think, sometimes forget because of some of her movies. She's hilarious. Mm. And, you know, I imagine back then as well, we, there's still sometimes... Do you remember that thing, women aren't funny? Do you remember that? That was a real, <laughs> name a woman that makes me laugh. Well, there's loads of them. Uh, yeah. But, but, but I would imagine back then, what was this, early early 80s, late 70s? Or when, when would that have been? That's when she did her own television series. She did, uh, yeah. Thompson. Yeah. And it was, oh, it was attacked from every angle. Yeah. It had some very funny stuff in it. Yeah. But it, right from the start, it had that attitude of, but she's just a woman on her own. How can that be funny? Exactly. Speaking mm. of women on their own, you also worked on the Kate Robbins show. I did, yeah. I I, I know Kate a, a bit, you know, and mm. I, she is so delightful. Mm. When she was in Crossroads, she was a very very important woman in my life as a as a young man because she was, you know, she still is <laughs> hot, hot. I'm going to say it, Kate Robbins, you're hot. Yeah. Um, and another woman who you know, getting your place. You are you are not meant to be funny. You're meant to be the support for the funny man. Yeah. And she is so talented as well mm-hmm. and so funny. The voices and the characters and the singing. She does everything. and Everything. But I love the fact that she's now been discovered as an actress. Yes. That actually she's, she's suddenly doing all sorts of serious stuff. And Ricky, in a way, led to that, putting yeah. her in Afterlife. That's true, actually, yeah. People went, oh, my God, yeah, Kate's good, isn't she? And I think that she's having a real resurgence. Yeah, and I think you're right. There is, is, you have to ride the wave. If you're lucky, you have a period where you're really successful, everyone loves you and everyone knows your name. There are exceptions, but there is almost inevitably that downswing where, you know, you're out of fashion, you're not so hot. I don't mean in terms of looks, but I mean in terms of (laughs) of being wanted by TV companies. And, And some people 
when that wave dips, they go, oh, you know what? I'm done. I'm out. And and, and Kate is brilliant because she rode that wave and she came mm. back up and she, um, and naturally funny as well. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, she hardly recognises it in herself. It's weird. Really? The number of conversations I've had with Kate where I've said, you are just one of the funniest women. She's yeah. like, oh, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm really boring. Wow. Isn't that funny how we see yeah. ourselves? And going back to confessions, uh, Ted Robbins was the warm-up for confessions. Uh, yeah. You know, what a family, you know, because they're cousins, obviously, of the McCartneys. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Mike I, I, and Paul. <laughs> That's the, I can't remember his name for a second. <laughs> Mike and Dee's brother. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I, love, I, I, I am lucky enough to, I know Mike a little bit. And he always talks about our kid. So our kids ah. was, you know, I think that's so lovely. I asked <laughs> him once, I was interviewing Mike, I said, Mike, can I ask you a question? He said, you can ask me anything. I said, what's Paul McCartney's phone number? And he rattled off the phone number from when they were like 10 years old. Ah. And I thought, that is, what, what a great answer to a dumb question. And how <laughs> wonderful that you remember that. Yeah. Because they, I've not yet been, but I want to go to McCartney's and Lennon's houses, you know, the National Trust. Mm-hmm. And Mike pretty much made the McCartney's house look like it did in the late 50s. You know, he yeah. was the one that went, right, well, this was the this was the wallpaper, this was the carpet, these are the photos that we had hanging up. You know, he's he's such a talent as well. What yeah. a family, what a family. Amazing lot. Hey, Kate, Kate told me that he turned up, Paul McCartney, when her mum was in hospital and they knew she didn't have long to live and he turned up and, he, and the doctor came in to see her and then pointed to Kate and said, come outside. And she went outside and thought, oh, God, she's going to say... And he said, um, sorry, is that Paul McCartney? <laughs> and she went, yeah. He went, that's one of my favourite songs. And Paul McCartney was sitting by the side of her bed singing Blackbird to her. Oh, my God. What a moment. Isn't that amazing? What a moment. How beautiful. It Isn't really is. I mean, I think for, for all the fame and yeah, for all being yeah. a Beatle, that says more about that man than, than yeah. anything. I think it's a beautiful story. What a beautiful story. Yeah, that is, mm. uh, that's lovely. Yeah. So the 11 o'clock show, well, I could talk to you about it for ages because I love it. Which man in the world didn't fall in love with Daisy? Yep. She was, she was beautiful, hilarious, mm-hmm. really, really smart. Again, you know, just, just absolutely spot on. She was so good. She was yeah. so good. Fantastic. I mean, she's wonderful, I think. Yeah. Uh, and it was a great program. It was the program that for so many years people have been talking about making that program. Yeah. And that was the first time yeah. that it really succeeded and maybe the only yeah. time. It was great. There's been a few attempts. The, the thing with that was lightning in a bottle. Mm. It was a time when Channel 4, Channel 4 has toned down a bit, possibly for the better. You know, there was there was a lot of meanness in the 11 o'clock show. But what are the odds of collecting all of that unknown talent mm. and them all turning out to go to America and make movies, to have sitcoms, to, to host game shows and be so successful? Mm. That's very, very unlikely yeah. to happen again, yeah. I would suggest. But I'm going to put that thrill of... I think you sitting with a bottle of wine watching the show, the thrill of that. Yeah. If ever I watch anything that I'm in, I don't get that thrill. <laughs> I don't watch anything now. I don't watch it. I don't want to see it. It is. I've done that. That's fine. Mm-hmm. I watched a tiny bit of I'm a Celebrity Back, but I'd have no interest in seeing or listening to what I do. At that point, that point, I did watch every show because I wanted to learn. Yeah. And I, I wanted to go, right, what did I do right? Why did that gag not work? Why did you, what, what, that was good. I'm going to do that again. Mm. So I did used to watch it then as a learning tool, and it was nice for the ego. But no, now I, 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 have, I have no interest in seeing no. me. I live with me and I get on my nerves all the time. <laughs> I don't want to see me. Yeah, God's quite. <laughs> yeah. And, and as time goes by, you just look and go, gee, what the fuck has happened to me? What's, 
Uh, I don't look like that. Who is that old bloke? <laughs> what was it? I did something. I did something a while ago, and then it, there was like a shot, and it was on a big screen. And I said, "Why? Why have you got a picture of my dad up there? What's going?" <laughs> Yep. <laughs> yep, yep, getting older. Oh, well, all right. Well, let's put that in as the first thing then. Okay, here. thank you. Fantastic. Okay, good. Let's move on to number two. I keep looking to my left because I've mm-hmm. got my things typed on the screen and I've just realised I've got five good things. I'm thinking, right, well, which one? Which one do I kick out? Mm-hmm. So i tell you what I'm going to put in. I'm going to put in the made-for-television pop group, The Monkeys. <laughs> I adore The Monkeys. Um, when, I was, when I was about... Four or five, so that would have been about 78, 79, my parents gave me a dance set record player. Oh, my God, I loved it. And they gave me four records. One of them was the William Tell Overture. Thanks, guys. (laughs) One of them was, (laughs) I'm kind of embarrassed to say it, one of them was the Black and White Minstrels Mm -hmm. to a four, five-year-old. Wow. The other two. One was the Monkeys' first album and their single, I'm a Believer, back with I'm Not Your Stepping Stone. And oh. as a kid, I was obsessed with it. I was obsessed. It's something was was going on. Then a few years later, they, would, they repeated the TV show during the school oh. holidays. And <laughs> I just, something clicked and it became an obsession. And it, it, this obsession has gone on, oh my God, 40 45 years, you know, I'm 50 this year. And it was an obsession. You know, when I got to about 13, 14, I remember I, all I had was this album and this single. And when I was about 13, I, I've got to buy a greatest hits. I've got to go out and buy a record. And I didn't have enough money. I went to um, Our Price Records in Slough, in the Queen's mm-hmm. Shopping Centre. And I went in and I was about two pounds short. And I was like, oh God. So I went to the fountain. There was a fountain outside where people would chuck <laughs> coins in. I remember it was freezing cold. It was November. It was so cold. Uh, thank you, Chanel. And I, I took the coins out of the fountain. So some poor charity has suffered about two or three quid. And I took these coins out and I went to the shop and I bought this record. And it was, um, you know, people talk about the first time they saw Bowie on TV and they go, oh, it was life-changing because you didn't know if he was a boy or a girl. You didn't, you know, and it just, the, he was a freak like me. This album was my... David Bowie. It, I took mm. it home and every song was better than the last. I thought, wow, how is this happening? How is this happening? This is incredible. And I was really lucky because that moment was around the time the monkeys got back together. Three of them got back together, 86. So they were they were a real thing again, real inverted commas. They were a touring act and I was able to, you know, get information about what they were doing and, and the fact that they were touring and I would buy these horrible bootleg videos that were terrible quality. <laughs> and then they came over to the UK in 1987. Me and my friend Michael went at the Royal Albert Hall. Oh my God, I felt alive. I felt absolutely Alive, it was it was wonderful to see these heroes. Oh, I bet it it's, was. Yeah. Well, I was going to say old men. They would have been about thirty eight, thirty nine at the time. <laughs> you know, babies. Um, yeah. And that obsession grew and grew and grew. And I was very lucky with my friend Glenn. A few years ago, we set up a record label. I'm not to do with it now. It's, it's Glenn, but we set up this record label solely to put out obscure monkeys records, solo records and stuff like that. <laughs> and I ended up working with three of them. No. Uh, um, no, ended up working with two of them, but being friends with the family of, of, of Davey as well. And 
I ended up working with Mike Nesmith and Mickey Dolenz and we would email wow. each other and I had Mickey's phone number and I went out for lunch with him late, uh, last year when he came over and, you know, I can call, I can call Mickey Dolenz a friend. Brilliant. This is amazing. And 13-year-old me who's still inside, you know, I was having lunch with him. I was thinking, <laughs> oh, my God, oh, my God, Mickey Dolenz, don't, don't stare at him. Um, they have brought me so much pleasure. I took... I took my eldest son when he would have been six to a monkey's concert, his first ever concert, Hammersmith Odeon. We were sat at the front mm. and he was loving it. And then there's a bit in the show during a song called Going Down where Dolenz would go and get an audience member to sing a verse. And he's walking across and he looked at me and recognised me and he went, do you want to do it? I went, yes, I do. So I got <laughs> and I'm singing Going Down with looking at Mickey Dolenz, locking eyes, and I handed the microphone back and a big, big cheer. Whoa, whoa. And I turned around and my uh, my six-year-old at the time, he's 13 now, Alex was sat there with his legs scrunched up like this, hands <laughs> over his eyes, and he wouldn't look <laughs> at me. Most no, my dad. Yeah, and oh, I said, no. I said, how are you feeling? He said, I, I, I don't, I can't put it into words, but my stomach is whizzing around and my head hurts. I went, son, <laughs> that's embarrassment. That's my job. There's going to be plenty more where that comes from. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how brilliant. Yeah, yeah. What a thing, though. Yeah. What did you call the record label? The record label's 7A Records, because there's a lovely bit at the beginning of Daydream Believer where the producer goes, 7A. And Davey says, what number is this? And they all go, 7A. Goes, all right, all right, just because I'm sure I know. So we called it 7A, and it was a successful thing. You know, we weren't lighting cigars with 50-pound notes, but we brought a lot of pleasure to people. You know, it's, it's very, very nice. I think our biggest record may have sold a 1,000. They tended to sell three, 400. But what an impact. And it yeah. was stuff, really obscure stuff that would never get released. And and people loved it. You know, it brought a lot of pleasure. Well, it's interesting with the music of the Monkeys, isn't it? Because that first album would have almost entirely been written by yeah. extremely famous songwriters from the time. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, Neil Diamond wasn't. He, he was on the second. But um, Carol King was on there. Carol um, King, yeah. Who was on there? The, Carol uh, Bear Sager. Um, I think she, I don't know if she was on that one. I think she might have been on the second. David Gates and Brad. It was great, and of course the, the the controversy was: well, they're not a real band. Well, they're not a real band. They don't play on their albums. Well, they didn't play on their first two. They played on the later ones. Who cares? Yeah, and actually, some of those later ones are the songs that they wrote for themselves. Yeah, were really interesting. Yeah, and they showed that you know they've been set up as the American Beatles. Yeah, yeah, and they showed that actually they, to a large extent, had the same sort of. Uh, innovative skills. They, yeah, you know, they, the Beatles are the Beatles, the greatest rock and roll band in the world. You'll never come close. Um, but yeah, Mike Nesmith, I believe, invented country rock that the Eagles, you know, the Eagles went on to do and, and, and mm -hmm. the Birds went on to do. And Dolan's wrote this great song called Randy Scouse Git, right? And he got the name because he watched this, it, it would have been Till Death Us Do Part or, or you know, the, the, the Alf Garnet thing, whatever the mm -hmm. name of it was at that point. And during yeah. that show, Alf Garnet would call his son-in-law a Randy Scouse git. And that <laughs> phrase meant nothing to Dolenz. He wrote, well, I'm nicking that, and that's going to be the title of my song. And the record label went, nah, you, you cannot have a song called Randy Scouse git. What is, you need an alternate <laughs> title. So he said, we'll call it that, alternate title. And people don't realise, that was a bigger hit than Daydream Believer. That went to number two. Daydream Believer, I think, went to number four or five. You could, so full of boring stats. Um, no, it's crazy though, isn't it? And that whole thing of, well, they're not a real band, who cares? Who cares? Yeah. You know, it's just it's music. Is the music good? Well, they yes. were to you as well, weren't they? Yeah. Uh, I wish my friend Jeremy Pascal was still alive. He was a DJ with Capital Radio for quite a long time. Okay. But when he was a young man, he worked for the NME. Yeah. And was given the option of interviewing the Beatles 
or the Monkeys. Oh. And he forever after was known as Jeremy the Monkeys Pascal because he picked the Monkeys. <laughs> How fantastic. Hmm. He made the right choice, I believe. Well, maybe he did. You know, lots of people interviewed the Beatles, but he got to talk to them, the monkeys, right at the start. Can I just say, by the way, dear listener, you don't know what I'm going to talk about, do you? No. And how wonderful that you're able to reference your friend and have a story that's connected (laughs) to this. That's the thing I've noticed. I've, I've heard the podcast a couple of times. You you have a story for everything that's, that's, thrown, that's thrown at you. It's, it's Let's hope amazing. I'm not making him up. That's all. Well, uh, I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask an important question. I know this yes. is a difficult one to answer. Yep. But who was your favourite? It fluctuates. I'm going to say Michael Nesmith. I'm going to I'm going to say him, and I'll tell you why. Because he didn't do the reunions for the early reunions. He did, and I was lucky enough. I flew over to the states to go and see when it was Peter and Mickey and, and Mike, mm. and I got an interview with Mike when he wasn't doing interviews. I was so lucky. I just emailed him. He went, "Yeah, sure. When do you want to do it?" Oh my god! And he's he's the the most excited I've ever been about an interview. And I said, "Look, Mike, I know you don't like talking about the monkeys." He said, "Ian." You can ask me anything you want about the monkeys. I said, all right, Mike. So when you're recording, I don't want to talk about the monkeys. I'm only joking. You can ask me. And for about three minutes, every time I ask the question, Ian, I do not want to talk about the monkeys. I'm joking. Go on. You ask me anything you want. And that was a real thrill because at the time I got yeah. my first interview, he wasn't doing interviews and I got him. And, you know, it was, you know, you must have worked with people who you look up to. I don't know if you'd call them heroes, but people you respect and admire and a big fan of. And yes. it's a real thrill, isn't it? When your career allows you to work with someone who you have a deep respect and love for. Absolutely, especially when they then talk to you as if you're the same as them. You go, what? What? That's ridiculous. And strangely enough, (laughs) this is, you're going to think I must have known what you were going to say. Yeah. But um, I got a phone call one Sunday afternoon from a friend of mine who was the floor manager on the Little and Large show. Okay. And they said, can you play the bass guitar? And I said, "Uh, a bit. They said, can you play it enough to look as if you're playing it if you mime? And I said, yeah. They said, oh, do you know Daydream Believer? And I said, I do, yeah. So he said, get up to the BBC studios as soon as you can. So I drove to the BBC. Yeah. And they said, right, this is Davy Jones. You're going to be the bass player behind him, but you have to sing the harmony for Daydream Believer with him. This is amazing. So I sang Daydream Believer with Davy Jones on the Little Nard show. This is amazing. And this is, honestly, (laughs) it really does sound like we've planned this. I used (laughs) to run a YouTube channel called Rare Monkeys, and it's still up there. I've lost the login, so I can't get in. That clip is on that channel. Well, I'm there, yeah. I'm checking that out straight after. That is... Hilarious. That is absolutely <laughs> hilarious and wonderful. Oh, I'm going to have a look at that later. That's that, I've seen that clip a dozen times and I, I never noticed. How funny. Why would you? Yeah. You look at them. Why yeah. would you look at a bloke playing the bass? How funny. I yeah. um, was lucky enough, I got, Eddie Large became a friend. We did, you remember in 2016, everyone died. David Bowie, Prince, George Michael, everyone died. Yeah. And there are all these tributes. Oh, weren't they great? And I, me and my producer, Catherine, kept thinking, we should have said this to these people before they died. We've got this wrong. So we did a thing where we would get, you know, kind of older comedians or older people that had meant meant something to us to come on the show. We'd invite them on. We had Paul Daniels and we had David Hamilton and Tommy Cannon and we had Eddie Large. 
And some of them were waiting for the punch because they knew me from the 11 o'clock show and that's kind of sarcastic. And some of them were really waiting for the, mm. the sucker punch and, and it didn't come. It was all affection. And I became friends with Eddie Large and um, he hadn't done a show for ages. He, he'd, lost, he'd lost his bottle. He'd lost his nerve. And I kept saying to him, how about if I put on a Q&A show where I host it, you get all the money, I'll do all the publicity, you haven't got to do anything, and people would love it. Well, I, Ian, I've got no interest in doing it. And about three months later, he said, he emailed me going, how would this work if we did do it? He said, I want it. he lived in Portishead. He said, I want to do it in Portishead. I want to be able to walk to the venue. What mm. would it be like? And so I put on this show in, in the, the, you know, the community hall in Portishead. And it was so lovely because the first half was him doing a talk and the first five, 10 minutes, shitting himself. You could see it. <laughs> and I'm at one side of the stage just in case he froze. And his mm. lovely wife, um, Pats, was at the other side just in case he froze. 10 minutes into it, five minutes into it, he became that performer again. He it clicked Brilliant. and he, he kicked in and he became that performer again. And it was such a lovely, lovely evening because it was an evening full of love. People celebrating him, you know, listening to these wonderful stories. Mm. And it was, it was delightful. Fast forward a few years, he died during COVID, of COVID, heart, heart problems and COVID. And when COVID ended, there was a lovely portrait done of him that was being unveiled at the Winter Gardens in Blackpool, I think it was. And we got mm. invited, I got invited up. And Tommy Cannon, Tommy Cannon came over to me and went, all right, Ian, how's it going? And we had a <laughs> lovely chat and they were making a statue of Bobby Ball. And he said... I don't understand why the we we broke the records for the Winter Garden, and I don't know. There's not even a plaque. Mm. What have I got to do? And I said, Tom, you know what you've got to do. You have to die. You have to <laughs> die before you get the recognition, because that's how mm. we do it in this society, and it's nuts. Yes, absolutely yeah. nuts. And strangely enough, I do pursue those people because right. I think that this is an opportunity to talk to them. I've spoken yeah. to a few. Yeah. Yeah. Freddie Davis, Freddie Parrotface Davis. Oh, wow. Okay. And I've spoken to Tommy on, on yeah. this. He was just lovely. Yeah. I am, ah, this may be a secret. I may have to cut this out, but I am, for me, this is a beautiful thing because I got put in touch with Anita Harris. Oh. By Freddie Davis. Yeah. He said, you should talk to, to Anita. She's lovely. She'd lo you'll, love, you'll love Anita. She's lo and I said, I do love Anita. Yeah. And my father's favourite song was one of her hits. Brilliant. Uh, and she rang me up before Christmas and said, do you, do you want to do this thing? Then I said, I'd love to. Yeah, yeah. And I said, mostly because I want to tell you how much I love Loving You, the song yeah. Loving You. And I said, it was my father's most favourite song. Beautiful. And she started singing it. Oh, mate. And, and Moments like that. I cried. I cried on the... I said, no, you'll have to stop. I'm crying. I can't listen to this. It was the most beautiful thing. That's magic. Mm. I, I see it hitting you there. I can see yeah. it hitting you there. Look at that. Isn't that wonderful? Thank you for sharing that. Ah, <laughs> uh, there we are. There we go. God, well, the, yeah, the monkeys. The fantastic monkeys. I am a believer. There we go. Thank you. They're in. They're in. <laughs> where do we go? I realise I'm talking way too much. I, um, I tell you where we we'll go next. Uh, the next thing I would like to put in the time capsule is... Right, for anyone not subscribing to the Acast Plus version of this podcast where you get it ad-free, here are some ads to help pay for the making of this adventure. Won't be long. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. If you'd like to not have this podcast interrupted, then do have a look at ACAST Plus. The link is in the description of this episode. For the rest of us, time to get back to the lovely Ian Lee. See you at the end. The next thing I would like to put in the time capsule is radio. Good. Because radio has has fed my kids and put a roof over my head for kind of 20 years. It's a bit longer, actually. My first radio show was about 97 or 98. And... I have enjoyed my journey through radio and discovering what I, who I am as a presenter and what I am as a presenter. And, and I like to think I got somewhere pretty unique. Um, I've fallen out of love with it slightly, and that's why I brought it in, because I'd like to try and reignite my passion for it. I don't really listen very much because it's changed massively. Uh, mm. I, and I'm a big fan of phone in radio. And it's all very political now, and it's all very, we're going to point at these people and hate them, and that's what it's about. There's very little love. Mm-hmm. Um, and I particularly like late night radio, 10 till one o'clock at night for me was always my favorite slot because I think magic happens at that time. There's real magic. And it takes a special kind of person to phone up a radio station at quarter past 12 at night, quarter past midnight. Mm. No one's doing that radio anymore, apart from a guy on BBC Manchester, a guy called Alan Bezik. He's the only person doing that. And he will be gone soon because of the changes. The, the, the only radio I really listen to now, Alan Bezik, bit of James O'Brien. And I listen to Capital, you know, because my kids get in the car, can we put Capital on? The first few times, oh, jeez, it's got to listen to this absolute crap. <laughs> but I love it. I love it. Yeah. I love it. You know, I love the fact I'd be driving. And I like quite a lot of the music. Some of it I don't like, but I do like quite a lot of it. But being in the car with my two boys, and Kim, who's now 11, Kim on, sat next to me, singing along. And we have this gag. <laughs> now I go, did you write this one, Kim? He goes, yes, I did. And he just <laughs> sings along, sings along to some songs that are quite rude in their lyrics. <laughs> really quite racy stuff. There's a song called WAP, W-A-P. And, and, well, you've said the C word, so I can say this. The, 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 what it means is, <laughs> I can't look at you and say it. <laughs> WAP stands for wet ass pussy. <laughs> Imagine. I think it was my nickname at school. 
<laughs> oh, that's tickled my pickle now. Thank you. Um, and so I take my 11-year-old singing along to a song called Wet Ass Pussy. He, and it don't, I don't think, it, you know, they censor it for the radio, so Ass and Pussy won't be in there. But it, it, but knowing that, and he sing, he's singing it at the top of his voice. And I'm thinking, <laughs> this is the coolest and weirdest thing ever. Um, yeah. And he's thrilled because these young presenters, some of these young presenters on Capital, follow me on Twitter, you know. And Ooh. when I tell him that, they're like, oh my God, that's so cool. That's sick. Oh my God, that's sick. <laughs> OMG. They don't even say, oh my God. They go, OMG, that's sick. <laughs> so I enjoy I enjoy that. And I didn't think at nearly 50, that's what I would that would be the main radio station that I listen to. And there's wonderful stuff happens on radio. I did a show a few years ago, a little tour called Ian Lee versus Radio. And I would play some of the bits where radio has gone wrong. <laughs> and there are so many clips of People phoning up and, and saying rude stuff, and it okay. Well, we can't have that. We're going to cut you off. There's a lovely bit. There was a radio presenter, Anna Rayburn, who's the, the kind of the first ever what you might call she would hate this term, but it's a shorthand agony aunt on mm-hmm. the radio. She de- dealt with people's problems, and I remember she worked at LBC with me. We didn't really get on, but that's okay. I still have respect for her, and um, she was doing a show about the history of words, where words come from. And someone texted in saying, um, oh, God, what was the word? It, it, this isn't it. I can't remember it, but it was something like, oh, we have a lovely text here from Steve um, to talk about the word dick rubber. And he says the word dick rubber comes from sailors in the old day who, when they swore, would rub their dicks on a Bible. And <laughs> she read it out straight face. And we're all Brilliant. in the office going, Oh my God, she's just said that, you know, and that was wonderful. And also, I never got caught out, but the people that would phone in with fake, rude names, and of course, Mm. the big one was Mike, pause, Hunt. You say those words together, you've got that. And I've heard that go out a few times. My favourite one, and then I'll I'll be quiet, Nicky Campbell, who I, I love and I think is great, on a BBC Five Live breakfast show, was talking, have you heard this clip? Was talking about the North Kent... Hunt. <laughs> he gets it wrong and he says the North C word. And it's really embarrassing. He goes, okay, I'm really sorry. I apologize for that. And then an hour later, he says, people are still talking about the North Cunt. Oh, oh I've done it again. <laughs> That's on YouTube. I recommend people go and listen to Absolutely that. North brilliant. Kent Hunt, Nikki Campbell. It's wonderful. Oh, my word. Years ago, see, now you're too young to know this, but years ago, I did a radio show for which was the forerunner of KYTV Radioactive. That's right. Yeah, oh, God, no, I'm not too young for that. Oh, right. Okay, well, one of the characters on that that we had occasionally was Mike Hunt. Was it? And we only put it in because we did it once and thought, we're going to get in trouble for this. Yeah. And nobody said a thing. Oh, how wonderful. So we did it again, and we kept doing it. <laughs> and we did it over and over again until right at the end of, I think, Series 7, we were called in and they said, um, one or two people have said that actually the way that you say that, it sounds... <laughs> we, we went, What? Oh, no, 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 but this is a long-running character. We can't change the name now. And they went, oh, okay, well, as long as you don't mean it, we got away with as it. As long as you don't mean it? <laughs> as long as you don't mean it. Oh, no, we don't mean it, sir. You can say my cunt as long as you don't mean it. And and we had another character played by Helen Atkinson Wood who was a parody of, of Anna Rayburn. Oh. <laughs> which we called Anna Rabies. Oh, my God, isn't mm. that wonderful? 
It all links up. They, they've <laughs> been, they were up until quite recently repeating those on BBC4 Extra. Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah. Um, so you probably got a cheque for about three pence through. Oh, almost that much, yeah. <laughs> that was early 80s, wasn't it? I would Im- yeah. imagine. Mm. And quite often, comedy from late 70s, early 80s, it doesn't stand up because it's, you know, it's funny at the time, it doesn't stand up. I would say a lot of radioactive still stands up it's still very very fast there are bits you go shit did they just did they just do that and you know obviously the talent on it was incredible you know we talk about the 11 o'clock show and the talent that exploded the the, the talent that came from that show Mm. and yeah that a lot of that still stands up and is still very very funny it's nice we did a tour not long ago and we played edinburgh and because we're lazy bastards we basically said we're going to do it as a retrospective and we took sketches that we'd done on the radio and we put them together in a show yeah and it went down a storm, and it yeah. was exactly the script. Yeah. So it's really interesting that uh, you write a joke, you know, 40, well, yeah, God, yeah, 40 years ago, yeah, and that it's still funny. But because they were just silly, lots of them were just silly. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, it wasn't topical, and it wasn't no. necessarily of the time. And we need more silly. I miss silly, you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a lot of my best radio shows were just nonsense, absolute nonsense, you know. And, yeah, yeah I miss silly. Yes, my favourite opening to any show was a phone-in interestingly enough, right. and said, OK, so we've got our first caller on the line. And the caller started by saying, OK, yeah, look, if I could just change the subject. He said, well, we haven't got one yet. How <laughs> daft. And then the person said, oh, oh, OK, well, I'll call back later then. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. Daft. And that Very show, daft. you know, shows like that were the inspiration for things like the day-to-day, you know, the, the or on the hour as it was on the radio, and then the day-to-day, mm. you know, these... We're going to completely skewer what radio sounds like. We're going to or we're going to get TV and we're going to we're going to really take the piss and use that format. Yeah, I mean, well, for a long time we thought maybe that was the case, but you don't really have the nerve to claim the somebody else's creative stuff. And then actually, no. rather sweetly, Steve Coogan and Patrick Marber both said that they were big fans of it when they were students and they took the idea and yeah, so they they said it themselves. How so great! Said, oh, how lovely! And wonderful to acknowledge that because that doesn't that yeah. doesn't happen very often in this business. It was my idea. I'm doing you i came up with it you know so um uh, yeah well, no that, that, i think that show was in was integral oh well that's nice there we are but there, there's so much about radio that is absolutely brilliant and you're right to put it into the time capsule and i've had a fantastic time on many yeah. things that i've done on radio yeah. particularly at capital radio i had some great times there. right there was a time when they used to do comedy shows and i don't remember that okay yeah i'll send you some recordings yeah please uh, do yes there's a thing called the encyclopedia of rock which when you're talking about having cast members i mean that had uh, tim McInerney, dawn french incredible the cast list is ridiculous and it was presented by my friend jeremy who i spoke about earlier yeah jeremy the monkey's pascal there we go and angus angus eden was yeah. the other presenter but yeah. they did a brilliant thing where whenever Anybody who was at all famous came into Capital Radio, they would nab them and say, could you say these lines? (laughs) (laughs) They would just record them and then they'd write a sketch around it. How great, how great. Oh, well, yeah, send me me that if you've got any of those. I love stuff like that. The trust of people doing things like that. I remember Elton John actually standing there saying, you want me to just say these words? They're just, yes, yes, no, I didn't. (laughs) He said, you want me to record that? And what are you going to put between it? And they said, we'll just write some funny stuff around it. And he went, you could write anything, couldn't you? And they went, yeah, but, you know, we we won't. He went, oh, gives a fuck, and just did it. (laughs) See, a PR team surrounding a star would not let you do that. They wouldn't let you anywhere near them to do that. 
Brilliant. No, are you a racist? Yes, I am. You know, you just, it's easy to get them to say anything you like. Well, Michael, we'll talk about your politics in a minute. Let's carry on with the time capsule. <laughs> no, I like to bang on about it. <laughs> How brilliant. How brilliant. Yeah, absolutely amazing. And yes, well, we're lucky to have worked in radio, I think. Oh, God, yeah. It's a privilege. What, what a privilege that, you know, I've done kind of pretty much every slot people will choose to fall asleep to me. And people will say, oh, I hope you don't think this is rude, I fall asleep to you. It's the greatest compliment you could ever pay to a, a, a late-night phone-in host. You know, mm. you you fell asleep listening to me. Wow, you know, are you inviting me into your bedroom, into your car, into your bathroom, into wherever? You've invited me in. Thank you for yeah. that. Real privilege. Real privilege, yes. The BBC foyer at Broadcasting House used to have a false jukebox in it, and in it oh. you could press and listen to bloopers. Oh. I wonder if they've still got a recording of it somewhere. That's wonderful. They had the famous, the man who claimed he wasn't drunk, but who was talking about the lighting up of the fleet. Do you, have you ever heard that recording? <laughs> I've not heard that one. Just a very drunk, well, you've joined me now, as we're waiting for the fleet to, um, any moment now, to light up, all light up. And, uh, oh, oh, look at that. Isn't that lovely? Oh, my, well, the fleet's all, fleet's all lit up. Oh, it's like fairy lights. It's such a funny... I love it. One final one before we move on. My favourite one. The, the, the commercial radio has a seven-second delay, so if you phone up and swear, I can dump it, doesn't get broadcast. Yeah. BBC Local Radio doesn't, kids. Do with that information <laughs> as you will. And there was a great. There was a phone-in on BBC London late at night, my friend James Max hosting it, and he says to caller, so what do you think about Boris Johnson then? Well, I think he's a cunt. And <laughs> that's on YouTube as well. Go and look for that. There is a famous one which I think is Pete Murray from way back. Yeah. It's the pause at the end of what he says that is the really funny thing about it. It's because he said, we've got a record here from Janet, who uh, sadly, a uh, husband of 55 years, Jack. Dear Jack has uh, just passed away recently. She said, could you just play something to cheer me up? So uh, I hope this does it for you, Janet. Here's um, Clodagh Rogers with Jack in a Box. <laughs> and then before the music starts, there's a moment where you can tell he's gone... Oh, shit. And then he plays the music. <laughs> love, it. love it. I love it. And live radio like that. How, how beautiful. How <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Beautiful thing. So let's treasure it and let's put it in there. Where are we now? Are we number four? We're on number four. So which one of your five right. are you going to reject? This one I'm going to put in. Japan, I'm rejecting you. We'll come to you another day. I'm going to put in... ADHD. Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder. Mm-hmm. Because... I retrained a couple of years ago uh, as a counsellor, diploma in counselling, and um, that's now what I do for a living. You know, it's my it's my full-time job. And on the course, I was nervous because at school I wasn't very good. I was not particularly a nice person at school, but I, I, I just couldn't sit still in a lesson. I couldn't listen. I couldn't learn average GCSEs, awful A-levels. Just couldn't do it. And oh. I, I, I thought it was because, as some of the teachers told me, I was naughty and I was thick. That's what I was told. Imagine a teacher saying to a kid, well, you're naughty and you're thick. You know, you'll never amount to anything. That's what mm-hmm. I had. And they may have been right on that. Um, but on the course, a few months into it, one of the teachers, a lovely lady called Sally, went, well, of course, Ian, you're ADHD, aren't you? I said, no. She went, oh, maybe you should get tested for it. Mm. So I did. I, 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 you can, some doctors will do it on the NHS, but it's like a 12-month waiting list, and I was impatient because I'm ADHD. So I got in touch with a psychiatrist, and you fill out a form, and you answer some questions, and he came back and went, yeah, you are one of the most ADHD people I have ever met in my life. And it was 
he diagnosed me as bipolar at the same time. And it was the most amazing thing. I put the end of the Zoom call and I phoned up my friend and went, I'm ADHD. And <laughs> because it was suddenly, it explained everything in my life, almost yeah. everything in my life. And I started reading a book about it. And I would keep phoning my friend and going, oh my God, the fact that I don't recognize faces. I don't recognize faces. Uh, there are a few, you know, you've been on tele- television a lot, so you're kind of locked in. But, but if I meet someone, I don't recognize face. I don't remember names, cannot remember anybody's name. Thank God you've got it written on your Zoom screen because I would struggle. Um, there was a weird one. Like we had this, we used to have this joke. If we were out and about having a meal, I could not hear what the person opposite was was saying. I go, oh, there's too much hubbub. And we just thought that was a weird thing. That's part of being neurodiverse for some mm-hmm. people. We can't, our brains can't filter out noise like non-neurodiverse people. Um, the, the, the fact that I, I take rejection so badly, you know, someone can say, no, I don't want to go to the pictures with you. And for days I'll be going, oh my God, they hate me. You know, sobbing about it. Relationship mm. ended, you know, a, a relationship that hadn't lasted very long. I'll be devastated for months. So there are all these things that I just thought were normal, that everyone did. And mm. it turns out not everyone does. And it's because my brain is wired differently. And it's brought me a lot of peace because I can now look back at school and go, I had no chance there. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a thing then. People didn't recognize it. No. I had no chance in school because the way they taught, the way schools teach – does not work for my brain. I have to watch something, write it down at the same time, and then highlight it. I need, you know, at least a three-tier mm-hmm. system for it to go in, and it has to be visual for me for it to have an impact. You know, um, it's explained everything. It's also what has made my radio shows unique because I would – I remember I worked at BBC WM once, and there was a new boss, and my show started at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and at 10 to 2 I went down. And she said, what's on the show today? I said, I don't know. <laughs> she goes, what's on that paper you've got? There's always a blank piece of paper to write down stuff. She said, and afterwards, she said, we'll talk afterwards. And she called me and she said, you cannot go into a show without anything planned. And I said, was it a good show? She went, yeah, no, t- today was a good show. I said, well, that's how I work. I cannot plan stuff. And it's given the fact that I can go off on a hundred different tangents, as people may have heard <laughs> today. That's what's made my radio shows the reason that a lot of people like them is also the reason a lot of people hate them because there's not really a narrative. Right, yeah. So I would like to put ADHD in there and I want to celebrate it. I think it's a wonderful thing once it's recognised and I think it's a superpower and I just, I absolutely love the fact I got that diagnosis because I can start being me. And you're not a naughty boy and you're not thick. No, no. It was like getting the instruction manual for life. It was like, oh, okay, right, now I can apply this stuff and I can find ways of working around it. There is, I'm underneath my stairs. On the stairs, there's a packet of pills that I need to take upstairs. All I need to do, take them upstairs, put them in my bedside cabinet. They've been there for three weeks because every time I walk past it, I go, I'll do it next time. That's Mm -hmm. wonderful. I love that stuff. (laughs) So ADHD and all neurodiversity, I want rammed up your time capsule, please, Mr. Fenton Stevens. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, I'm very happy to take that and to treasure it. Yeah. Because I I have two autistic grandchildren. Okay. And one who suffers from PDA. which is PDA? PDA is pathological demand avoidance. Okay. So uh, pathologically, she cannot cope 
with what appears to be somebody telling her what to do. Incredible. It sends her into complete panic. Her brain interprets, put your shoes on, as an attack. Yeah. And so she goes into either flight or fight mode. So you have to say, I think it'd be a good idea to put shoes on sometime. Wonderful. What do you think? And she says, I don't want to put them on. You go, okay, don't, you don't have to put them on. And a minute later, she'll say, I'm going to put my shoes on. You go, okay. It's incredibly difficult, as you yeah. can imagine. It makes life very difficult. She doesn't go to school. She can't cope with that system. Yeah, of course. As you say, school is not designed for people like that. When I said wonderful, that the wonderful was was when you were describing the coping mechanism that I'm assuming it's her parents, but have, the family mm-hmm. have developed and are developing to make to be able to integrate her into yeah. family and into society, you know, because yeah. there are some people that wouldn't wouldn't do that, you know. It, it could get unpleasant and nasty. Well, I'm sure in the past people would have absolutely just seen her as a naughty child. Yeah, do as you're told. Yeah, make her do it. I remember phone-ins on, on radio stations, late 90s, early 2000s. Is this ADHD a thing? It's just kids being naughty, isn't it? Because we didn't have the, have the understanding. No. I would suggest that some schools are significantly better. And some schools, you know, they ain't got enough money, ain't got enough teachers, they've got to do mm-hmm. all these tests that they have to do. Yeah. But some schools are, are, are learning to be accommodating to neurodiversity and different behaviours. Yeah. And also the situation with your granddaughter, she's still a human being. She's still yeah, a, a wonderful, you know, life form. She's, I, I, I bet you have so much fun with Amazingly her. inventive. She's an in, incredible amount of fun. She's very, very funny. She's got a brilliant sense of humour. Uh, thank you for sharing that about your granddaughter because um, I think it's important. You know, I'm celebrating mine because it, it really has a positive impact. Mm. It, it can, the, the different neurodiversities can be challenging. For the, the family, but also the person, This we do not live in a neurodiverse world. The person who is, and I like to say I am ADHD. I don't, I don't like, I, I, I try not to say I have, I am. People use different phrases that works for them. That works for me. It can be so difficult for the person who, who is autistic, ADHD, mm. whatever it may be. But we're all human beings, you know. There are wonderful things to be found in all these things. As you say, yeah. you've found that for yourself. And for you, it's a real plus. Yeah. You've been given this superpower, you describe yeah. it as. Yeah. And now I think that within all of them, if you search, if you give it the time, you will find those superpowers in people. Give it the time. Mm. Yeah. You have to give it the time. And not everyone does. My last ever radio show, a couple of weeks ago, on uh, my breakfast show I was doing, we'd had a caller. Throughout the, I wasn't there long, six months. Caller called Judy, who was was dealing with cancer, and she also had an autistic son who couldn't speak, di- who who didn't speak, who chose not to speak. Yeah, yeah. The very very last show, Judy phoned up saying, "I just want to thank you for, um, you know, doing the show, and and also my son. Oh, I'm going to cry. <laughs> um, my son wants a word. I'm thinking what? Oh my god. And he he came on. He said, "Thank you, Ian Lee." <sighs> and. I, she said he, has, he hasn't spoken for however long. And that, he he spoke. He spoke. That did me in. <laughs> it's oh, doing me God. in now. How beautiful. And that's down to her patience and love mm. and encouragement. Yeah. And look, we're both we're both getting a little misty. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of, I, I knew a young lad. I did pantomime and this young lad's mother wrote to me and said, could I bring my son back to meet you? Uh, he's autistic and he doesn't speak very much and he's never laughed. Right. And we came to see the pantomime 
and halfway through it, he became hysterical with laughter. And, uh, you know, the moment where you're sitting, putting your makeup on to do the 10 o'clock show and a pantomime, that's the thing that makes me go, oh, yeah, this is good. Yeah. We don't know how our work has touched people. I don't say that in an arrogant, egotistical no. way. Sometimes we're lucky enough. Sometimes I'll get an email or I'll, I'll be at a show and someone will come up and just say, that show you did on loneliness, that was me. And, but but we are so blessed in, in the career that I've had and, and, and your career that is still ongoing that, that we will be making a difference to people. You know, we talked about how this, a lot of this stuff isn't actually important. To some people, it is. And, and what a great story. He'd never laughed before. He laughed at your show. Mm. Wow. I know. It's amazing. But, I mean, we're lucky that we have, we have access to a lot of people. But I think that, actually, your attitude in life, yeah. as you say, you never know how you're affecting people. And yeah. I think that having the attitude of smiling at people, saying good morning to people, yeah. being patient with people, it can have an enormous effect. It's yeah. much easier to go, oh, get out of my way. Yeah, I've got I've yeah. got important things to do. Just get out of my way, everyone, because yeah. I'm coming through. If you can actually teach yourself to go, well, hang on a minute, I, I'm not as important as I think I am. Yeah. I, I'm sure it would make a difference in the world. Um, I, I can also understand why people don't. I remember being young and thrusting, and, mm-hmm. and I am immortal. I will never die, and I'm really, really important, and I know everything. And I think perhaps it is a thing. Some people get it young, but I think it perhaps is a thing as you get older, as you you know, cross over the halfway mark in this this thing <laughs> called life, I think that can be a changing point. Yeah, that halfway point for me is coming soon. <laughs> Gosh, t- <laughs> tell your face. <laughs> <laughs> How rude. Oh, How rude. Brilliant. No, ADHD. That's you, you bloody ADHD yeah, people. Exactly, outrageous. Saying outrageous things, up. honestly. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't stop myself, Michael. That's my excuse. Uh... Couldn't stop it. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that you're proud of it, and I'm glad that you see it yeah. as a bonus and how lovely that you have it. And also that finally these things are being properly yeah. recognised. We are we are getting there. We're, we're a long way off, but we are definitely getting there, and I mm. think that's wonderful. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, you said you'd make me laugh, and you said you'd make me cry, and you've done both. So, Oh, that wasn't the one that was supposed to make you cry. <laughs> well, oh, God, we're in trouble then. <laughs> we better move on to it. I think that's what's coming, is it? This Okay, so so this is the, the thing that I would kind of like to forget, and it's it's slightly, okay, here's the thing I'd like to forget, and then we can talk about it, and this I am going to cry. Um <laughs> So my, it, it was just the past couple of weeks ago, it was the 10th anniversary of my dad dying. He died at 62, you know, pancreatic cancer. And I did not speak to my dad for decades, for years. Did not speak to him. We fell out because he was not a great dad. He was, um, I suspect he was a sex addict and he was off having affairs. I don't know how many brothers and sisters I've got out there. I don't know. Mm. I know of three, four, five. I know of five. I think there's a sixth who might live in Australia. There may be more. Wow. Because he was out shagging all the time. You know, he was, he was treating my mum terribly in that respect. I have a I have a, a birth sister, my sister Joe, who I love wonderfully. And I've learnt to embrace certainly some of my half family, you know. Mm-hmm. So because of that, he he moved out when I was 14. I went, I'm never fucking talking to that prick again. And he would every now he would try to make contact. The, the 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 thing I did as well is I said I don't want to see that half of the family anymore. And my mum said, "Okay, I support that." And I look back and I think I really wish my mum had said, "Okay, well let's sit with that for for six months and we'll talk about it when you've come." I was an angry young man, mm. so I never saw Nanny Peg. I never saw Granddad Jock ever again. They died. Never saw them. 
because I was an angry young man and mm -hmm. I was not encouraged to reconsider that. And there would be moments where I make contact with my dad. I could never be myself around him. He wasn't violent. You know, you get smacked as you did in the 70s, which is, is not a good thing, but he was never violent. I just felt very intimidated by him and and would could not really be myself. And there were some attempts at a reunion. I went and worked with him uh, in Pakistan, bizarrely, on a film with Christopher Lee. He, he worked in TV. He was props. He was props manager at the BBC for a while. Mm. Um, we went and worked in Pakistan for three months to try and get some reunion. It didn't really work. He told a massive lie while he was there. He he was a compulsive liar, and he, he told this huge lie that he, my uncle had been in a serious car accident and was, was dying, and he had to go back and see him. It wasn't true. He was having a kid born. and You know, that's, oh, that's wow. what we were dealing with. Mm. So I saw him very, very little. And one day I found, I'm in 12-step recovery. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. And, and part of the 12-step recovery is making amends with people. And one day I found a watch and some pictures that I knew were important to him. So I got in touch after not speaking for years, saying, do you want to meet up and I'll hand this stuff over? And my plan was to go in and fucking lay into him. And I got there and suddenly I wasn't scared of him. Suddenly mm. I wasn't intimidated and I was able to say, these are the things that you did that had a negative impact on my life. And I want you to know they had a negative impact. I was also, Michael, able to recognize my part in it. You know, I, yeah. I, perhaps I could have reached out earlier to you, but, the, you know, I, la, 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 la. and at the end of it, I said, do you know what? I'm not prepared to call you dad yet, but if you're up for it, I'm interested in seeing if we can have a relationship. So we saw each other a couple of times and very, very shortly after that, he got in touch and said, I've got pancreatic cancer and I'm going to die in six months. Mm. He said two years, but then I spoke to his his, his wife and she said, it's not, I don't know where he's got that from, it's six months. Yeah. And I, I'm really grateful I made peace with him before I knew that. And suddenly the, this six months, and he got really ill very, very quickly. And I got to meet two of my half-sisters and a half-brother, got to meet his, his wife, who was wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people, so generous to me, so kind. And... He died really, really quickly, and it was a shit death. You know, it was a really shit, horrible, uh, uh, painful, morphined-up death. It was horrible. Mm. And another positive of that is I got to meet all my uncles and aunts again and my cousins because they would visit while I was there, and I was really scared, thinking, oh, my God, I've not seen them for, you know, however many years, this 15 years, this is going to be awful. Every single one of them, not one of them, criticized me or had a go at me or my sister, every single one of them embraced me literally and metaphorically and invited me back into the family. Mm. I'm still reintegrating and I, I should be in contact more, but I, but it's, I find it very difficult. Um, and then he died. And then, I, you know, his wife very kindly let me be a pallbearer at the funeral. <laughs> let me speak at the funeral. You know, I hadn't been in his life for years and she, Margaret, let me speak at the funeral. And... You know, I just think, fucking hell, what a fucking waste of time. Why couldn't we, why couldn't we put whatever it was aside, talk through it, fight through it if we needed to? Why couldn't we do that and then get on with with our lives of him as my dad, me as his son? Why couldn't we do that? And it is such a waste of time mm. and such a waste of life. And so I make sure with my, you know, only my eldest met him. It was difficult. I knew my eldest met him when he would have been three and my youngest was a baby, but I didn't take my baby to meet him. And, and then he, when he got ill, I, it, it, I, you know, I didn't really want him to see him like that. No. So 
Only my youngest met him. He doesn't remember it. He was three. But I got one picture of him with Alex. And uh, fucking hell, Michael, what a waste of life. What yeah. a waste of life. And we were talking earlier, and I don't know if it's in the podcast or if it was before, whatever, about living and about having to live and about I don't want to be on my deathbed thinking, I, you know, I wish I'd seen more of my kids. I wish I'd done that. So I am. I don't live with my kids, but I'm very much a part of their life. Mm-hmm. They, you know, I didn't know where my dad lived. They know where I live. I see them every other week, every week. I'm going to go and see one of them in a concert tonight. You know, mm. my ex-wife is incredibly open to that. You know, there's nothing, you know, she's wonderful about that. And I make sure I am there for my kids, whatever they want. I don't necessarily mean financial things, things. Mm. If they need me, if they phone me up, I make the time to speak to them. I listen to what they're interested in. They've got their own YouTube channels. I watch Mm. every single video they put up, you know, because I would hate you know, I only recently am I realizing, shit, how difficult was it for him to not see his son and his daughter? How difficult was it for him? Yeah. You know, so I, the thing I want to put in there is the wasted life of not being with my dad. Absolutely. Yeah. And there, and there is always the thought in your mind that had you spoken to him the way you did eventually to yeah. begin with, he might have seen the harm in what he was doing. Yeah. And in a way, not changed, yeah. but controlled it a bit more. I don't think he was well. You know, I think he was an alcoholic. Um, I think he was a dry drunk. He used to drink when I was a kid, and then he stopped. And I, that meeting, I, that, that reconciliation, I said, I, I was able to tell him, I'm an alcoholic and I'm a drug addict. And um, sorry, I'm sniffing a uh, and, and I'm curious as to why you stopped drinking. And he said, I was, I was driving home drunk. And I hit a police motorbike and I vowed I'm never going to drink ever again. And he stopped, stopped like that. But I do think he was still a, a, an addict in some way. And so his addiction came out in sex. He mm. had to have something to change the way he felt. He had to have something. Something happened to him as a kid. I have no idea what. But something happened to him as a kid that meant he had to do something to make him feel good. And for him, it was sex. Mm-hmm. I don't know why the, the the kids were a part of it. You know, that, that's a mystery to me. I don't get what that is. Um, but he wasn't well, and I can see it now. Yeah, he was a bastard to my mum, and, I, you know, I see that. And he was, he was a shit dad, but he was doing the best he could with what he had. Yeah. And he didn't have a lot, but he did the best he could. And, you know, it's weird because it's one thing I can never change. One thing I can never change. And I've pretty much forgiven him. You know, I went, I went and visited his grave last year. And I took some lunch and I sat there and I screamed at him and I shouted at him and I I, I, I cried for him and I you know and I asked for his forgiveness and mm. uh, but that's that's with me forever that that that's one thing that can't go what a waste what a waste yeah there's a very strange phrase that people say a lot these days I think it's a strange phrase it's where they say well I need a little bit of me time mm. and I always think that we should all say to that well you're with you all the time. <laughs> I need less me time. What you need is is us time. Yeah. That's what you really need. Yeah. And I think that actually we're all led to believe that you know, I just need to be with myself, just something for me, something that yeah. I want. Yeah. And actually, because of the nature of human beings, we spend most of the time thinking about what we want. And it would be a good thing to do it less, I think. Yeah, I think, well, I know it's proven that doing things for other people makes us feel better, makes us feel better. And for me... Because of that upbringing, family is key. 
I got divorced, and that's not something I'm particularly proud of. But my partner now, and and my kids now, and um, you know, this is making me think I need to reach out to my dad's family because I've not spoken to them for a while. My aunts and uncles, and actually, mm-hmm. I'm going to get get in touch with them this weekend because it, it is easy for me because I'm an addict. One of the things the disease of addiction is it likes to isolate us. If I'm isolated, then I'm stuck with my head, and if I'm stuck with my head, I probably wanted some beer, and if I get some beer, I'm going to want cocaine. Mm-hmm. You know, so. It, is a d- disease of isolation, and I I struggle with reaching out to people. I struggle with company, so it becomes an effort. So, if any of my family, particularly on my dad's side, uh, uh, are listening, um, I'm you know I'm really sorry that I'm really sorry that I struggle to to be in contact with you. I love you. I love you all. All my aunts and uncles and my cousins. Actually, I really really love you. I find it so difficult to 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 reach out, and that's something I I, I need to do, and I will do. Mm. Yeah, because you're right. It is a waste of life to to not take the opportunity. It's there. Yeah, it's never going to be all of your life. If you think oh, I've got the time, I've got so many things to do. I've got to work. Fuck that. Why don't they just let me have a little bit more me time, yeah. and then I'll be okay? But actually, you know, if you really offer people me time, in the end they go, well, "Where's everybody gone?" Yeah. So the best thing I think yeah. is, as you say, to try and find out why these things are happening. And also for your own benefit, like you yeah. say, forgive yourself and forgive them. Yeah. When my kids come and stay with me, I try and put the phone away. I'm present for them. I am there for them. And what's great is they're 13 and 11. And, you know, sometimes it will they'll be coming for the weekend and I'll get to think, oh, Alex is, is doing something with his friends. But he doesn't have to do it. He can come with you. <laughs> and part of being a parent is being able to let them go and go, no, 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 I, I, I'm not going to go, this is my weekend. Let him go and do what he wants mm. to do. And it's really sad because my babies are now young men and I miss the babies and I mm. want to spend time with them. But also being a good parent is recognising when they are ready to go off and do their own stuff yeah. and don't necessarily want to be with you. Yeah. It's tough. It's weird. It's, it's, it's beautiful and it's tough simultaneously. Yeah. yeah. means we're doing a good job. But OMG, it's mm. sick. Another thing they'd say, lollers. That means it's funny, <laughs> lollers. You're so you're so poggers, Michael. <laughs> yeah. So Ian, well, how yeah. lovely. Thank you so much for taking such care and thinking about these things, and for telling us the things you've told us. I think it's. Thank I'm, you. I'm really honoured. Thank you. That's a great rehearsal. Should we do it for real? Have now? you started recording yet? I I'll click record no. in a minute. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, don't do any of that cunt swear stuff thing. Don't do that. <laughs> so you can't say, well, can't say cunt, fuck, what's shit any Shit, good? bollocks. Wanker. Um, talent. Can't use any of those words. <laughs> no, no, no reference to me. Thank you for the opportunity. Listen, I've only listened to a few of your podcasts, but I'm now subscribed and I'm, I'm diving through it. And I, you know, so I, I really, really appreciate this opportunity, Michael. Thank you so much and keep up the good work. Lovely. It's nice to meet you again. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I'll see you in another 25 years. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton Stevens, and my guest, Ian Lee. I know we went on a bit, but I just found him a fascinating man to talk to, so I hope you enjoyed it too. If you did and want others to know that, then please do rate the show and feel free to leave a comment or even a review. We really appreciate the effort. Thanks. And if you want to hear more, then do subscribe to this podcast. 
You can also follow me and my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. And any one of them is the best way to message us, as we always have our noses in our phones, obviously. Alternatively, you can entertain yourself by listening to the theme tune by Pass the Peas Music on Spotify and trying to work out how many beats there are in a bar and when the little stabs come in. There, no, no, there, there. I bet you can't do it. This was a cast-off production for Acast, produced by John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'd better go before the pills wear off. I'll leave you with a bit of magic for a change. OK, I want everyone to think of a number between 1 and 10. Got it? OK, now concentrate on it very hard and try and telepathically send me that number. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's coming through. OK, your number is... Seven. Amazing, isn't it? At least 10% of you went, bloody hell, he's right. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.